Welcome to episode 22 of Mental Health by TalkLink. Here's what's coming up. So there's a really low bar for sexual satisfaction with women because they're not experiencing pleasure. Something that they think is meant to be this amazing part of their lives isn't working for them and they're going to go, what's wrong with me? Hi, I'm Rowan, and today we'll be speaking with Dr. Linda Kirkman, who is a sexologist, sex therapist, counsellor, sex educator, and researcher. Dr. Kirkman is also the current Victorian president of the Society of Australian Sexologists. Today's podcast is brought to you by TalkLink, an online directory based in Australia, launching in April this year. TalkLink lists mental health practitioners like psychologists, counsellors, and psychotherapists. Users can search for mental health practitioners for free by applying filters for things that are important to them, like a particular focus area or experience in a specific treatment type. Users can even see a short video of the therapist to decide whether this is someone that they may like to connect with. If you're a mental health professional and you'd like to get your name out there or would like to grow your business, you can sign up at talklink.com.au forward slash get hyphen listed. Or you can send an email to Hey at talklink.com.au if you'd like to know more. Okay, let's dive in. I am the president of the Victorian branch of the Society of Australian Sexologists, which is why you're talking to me. Um, yeah, I work as a sex therapist. I mostly earn my living these days as a sex therapist, but I also do education, uh, particularly around LGBTIQA plus topics or young people, or older, actually, no, or older, education about all the things. What's the difference between a sex therapist and a sexologist, or can I use them interchangeably? Sex therapist is specific. As a sexologist, I'm both an educator and a researcher and a therapist. Right. These days I'm more, more of the education and therapy and less of the research, but I have both a master's and a PhD in sex research. Amazing. So uh, who can call themselves a sexologist then? Do they need to have a PhD or what's the, what's the prerequisite? Uh, that's a really good question. It's not a particularly regulated profession in Australia at the moment. So anybody could hang up a shingle and say, I'm a sex therapist, come and tell me all the intimate details of your life. Mm. Um, and that's one of the reasons why the Society of Australian Sexologists has been formed and exists with really strict guidelines about who can practice and who can do what and who can be a member. For example, like as a sex therapist, the work I do is talking to people. I don't touch you. I don't ask you to take your clothes off or any of those things. And if I see somebody as a client, according to our code of ethics, I can never, ever date you. We can't have a relationship. If I was a psychologist, I'd have to wait two years and then maybe we could have a relationship. Oh, so that's so that those guidelines are intentionally really strict to make it as um, um, respectable as possible. So are those the Society of Australian Sexologists guidelines. Yeah, they are code of ethics. That's in our, right. it's one of the things in our code of ethics. Right. Yeah. So yeah. So um, so uh, but then who else can call themselves a sexologist? As a sex difference between a sexologist and a sex therapist. To finish that question is that the ology is the it's just all the science around sex and sexuality. So it includes the other things. A therapist would just be a therapist, might not necessarily be an educator. Right. And what can a sex therapist help you with if you go see one? Oh. Why would you go see one? 
Yes, excellent question. Um, oh, so many things. My brain's full now. I'm just crowd all the ideas. So usually people will contact somebody when they have a problem. Um, I would love it. And that's why I guess that's why sex education is really good because you want people to understand the things that they they benefit from knowing before they start a, a, a sexual relationship or even a, a romantic relationship with someone. But people will usually contact us when they have problems. So it might be um, women, for example, who say they've never had an orgasm and they, they would like to have one or they would, they feel it like they've having, having expected to have intercourse with their sexual intercourse with their partner, but they don't really want to or they're not enjoying it, or they've never actually succeeded. Like I, I, in one week this year, I had three women clients who we were married who had never had intercourse in their marriage. I think what? there was like three months, three months, three years and 10 years. They had, they had tried and not succeeded. So they were kind of reaching out to say, please help me with this. And wow. um, not because they didn't want to or from lack of trying, but because of a condition called vaginismus where the muscles of the vagina go, you know, nothing's getting in there. Right. Shop is closed. And which is a physiological response to a psychological condition situation. Is it a trauma-related response? It can be. It can be. And it can be simply a response based on the kind of sexuality education you've had. So I actually think I reckon that a lot of um, particularly sex negative and um, uh, pleasure negative sexuality education has a lot to answer for for people's misery, particularly the Catholic Church. So people who were told that and so much of sexuality education is sex is heteronormative. It's a, a man and a woman. There's only two people. It involves penis in vagina intercourse, and um, it's about making babies. And this is, and all about not making babies. But mm. rarely do you get conversations about pleasure. Mm-hmm. So people, yeah, why do go back to your question? Why do people come to see a sex therapist? Because they're not experiencing pleasure. Something that they think is meant to be this amazing part of their lives isn't working for them. And they're going to go, what's wrong with me? And my response would normally, in that if they came to see me, would be to say, there's nothing wrong with you. There's a lot wrong with the external world and how it's taught you to be around sex and sexuality. But let's just work at unlearning some of those things and some maybe some education around anatomy. I've just realized I haven't got a clitoris to show you. Or do I have one right here? So I might, damn it. No, I think I do actually do. I can, we can maybe get distracted and I can find my clearance. You can stop and start if you'd like. I've got, I have lots of, I have got a, a vulva puppet that's this big. Yeah. Um, and I, and a giant glow in the dark 3D clitoris as well that I, that I will use as a demonstrator model to say, the, the look on your face shows you want to see this. Hang on. I'm pretty I, sure I've got I, one. In I, I want to see it. I don't have my, my vulva puppet further away. I have a bag okay. of clitoris. Let's get out the green one. So this is what a 3D clitoris looks like. Hang wow. on, put it against yellow so it stands out. So people often think that this little button on the top yeah. is 
is that's the clitoris, right? And you have to rub it and suddenly it's like rubbing Aladdin's lamp, you know, oh, magic happens. And sometimes, sure, it does. But in fact, the clitoris, the clitoral anatomy is not dissimilar to the penis anatomy uh, in that it's much more complex and bigger and longer, some of it's inside. So you've got the crura, or these little wings on the outside. Mm -hmm. I'm just trying to find a place to hold it so it's easy to see against the backdrop. Yeah, no, I can see that there. And these wings are inside the labia majora, so the big ellipse on the outside of the vulva. So they go right kind of along. Mm -hmm. um, and these, these bulbs hug the end of the, the, uh, the opening of the vagina. Although everybody's different. I'm sure some they'll be not exactly lined up in the same place on every body. And all of that is erectile tissue, and all of that is tissue that can give pleasure. So really nerve-dense tissue. Yeah. In fact, the most nerve-dense place on the human body is this little tip here. So if, if somebody's going rub, 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 it can actually get really oversensitive. Yeah. I can see by the look on your face, yes. That's not comfortable. Um, so that's why knowing that there's actually more to play with is useful. When the When the person is aroused these the bulbs particularly i'm going to put it down now the bulbs will kind of expand and almost whatever's in, going inside the vagina they'll grip it and make it more comfortable so there's stimulation from the possibly again depends where it's at that's what that's might be where some of the pleasure comes from from the person whose clitoris it is mm -hmm. yes yeah, so i'll talk if someone came to see me about that stuff i'd say well this you know your anatomy is more complicated than that and arousal takes a really long time um, you've got to feel comfortable if you, you've got to feel safe and seen and connected. Mm -hmm. So I might send off often there's some, I might send people off with homework. I love homework. I'm an ex teacher and I joke, you know, it's now more home play than homework, but it might be something as simple as eye gazing, eye gazing with their partner and breathing together. Mm -hmm. And some people find that really, really challenging. But it's a really good start because it's about we're here together, we're connecting. It's very intimate. Oh, yeah. It's extremely intimate. Extremely. And pe some people, like, they're really uncomfortable with or they or they laugh. Or... I've seen people cry just by spending four or five minutes looking at each other, complete, you know, strangers or people who don't know each other very well. I've seen this in team yep. building contexts. And it's amazing. Yep. It's not just a once-off. It's amazing how often people cry because it's just such an intimate experience just staring into someone's eyes. Because you are you are being seen, and mm. we don't get seen very often. Mm. Yeah, it makes it's it makes me happy also when I have not only young women come to see me and kind of I get to be able to give them a whole heap of resources which I've sent to you for your show mm -hmm. notes. Um, but also I have young men who come and they 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 really want to sort it out for themselves and learn things, and and again there's there's so much in the wider world that says sex and sexuality should be a certain thing, that it should be, um, well, like you see on the, on the movies or like, you, like you're taught in school or that there's a, there's a standard sexual script mm -hmm. which begins with um, probably not eye contact, unfortunately, maybe a really fleeting eye, but not that kind of focused tuning in by breathing together. Maybe kissing, maybe touching erogenous zones, maybe a squeeze of the bum or playing with the breasts or genitals, maybe some oral sex. 
intercourse, usually someone comes, usually the bloke, and then it's all over. Because mm. the way physiology works with a lot of men is they will just fall asleep, not because they don't care. That's just what their body does after they've had an orgasm. And that's not necessarily what works for a lot of women. Some women, yep, if that's that's the thing that works for you, awesome. But for so many people, that standard script is like boring mm. and ineffective. It's like, well, so yeah, we're doing this thing that we're meant, that's the thing that you're meant to do, but what's why isn't it working for me? Mm. And part of it, oh God, there's so many things. So consent is really really important and I don't think consent education is done really well because not only is consent important but you've also got to feel safe to say no if you're saying an enthusiastic yes is awesome because that makes everybody feel a bit more aroused but if you want to say no you really need to feel safe that saying no won't get you into trouble won't make the other person won't respond with anger or irritation Mm. so a lot of so if that's the circumstance, people might um, consent to something they don't want to do simply as a way of safety. Mm-hmm. Which and that so that's the bigger picture. So that's part of I guess the sexologist's role and sex educator's role is to practice hearing, learning, and I've done this in lots of in workshops for years to practice making an offer. An expectation in the activity is the person will say no, and then as almost assertiveness training. Well, it's kind of, yeah, I guess yeah. so. Yeah. Because assertiveness, I think I wrote to you an email about the importance of agency, that sense of I am someone, I am entitled to be who I am, and people don't push me around. I'd love everybody to have a bit more of that in, in how they yeah. in how they live. Not, not, not so that I don't mean kind of arrogance, I can do what the fuck I like and who cares what you think, but mm. more will you do this thing or let's go to that place or whatever go thank you but no thank you and without any and that just that thank you but no thank you was really simple sure and it doesn't say oh thank you no i'm not feeling very well or thank you maybe later because may, something like maybe later gives the other person a wedge to go well what about you know 5 minutes tomorrow and you feel there's that sense of pressure again rather which is harder to resist yeah we actually heard from a um an equine therapist um jane faulkner and she talked about using horses to say no and practicing with you know big animals to create your space and have that assertiveness and then build up the strength and the 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 courage to relay that later to people so um very congruent and interesting i can't wait to listen to your podcast yeah yeah yeah, no, we've had some really talented professionals talk. I want I want to ask your advice on the intersection between mental health or your headspace, your psychology and sex. How much of the arousal process and the sexual experience is up in your head and how much is in your genitals and in your body? Fabulous question. Well, the, the biggest sex organ is the one between your ears. So your brain is the most mm. important sex organ in the body, the most like, biggest, most important. And I talked about vaginismus earlier. Well, that's that's actually, and it maybe was from trauma or just from um, maybe a negative experience or negative education. That's going to if if, that, if that's you, if that's if that's your relationship, or you know you waited till you get married for sex like you've been told to, and and you think, yay, no, tonight's the night. It's going to be all great, and then 
you can't kind of flip the switch from no, no, we don't do that to yeah, we can do this all we want. Mm. Um, then that's highly distressing. So relationships mm. have a huge effect on well mental well-being and mental health. People can become really distressed from if they feel like they're being rejected or slighted, even if the other person isn't necessarily doing that. But if they perceive it as a rejection and they're not good at that communication by saying, I think when you, like like someone doesn't reply and they think to a text message straight away, or they don't like me anymore, rather than they're doing something else and they'll reply later, or it's just not their style. Sure. Having a relationship and that sense of, being loved and wanted and valued for who you are is amazingly good for your mental health. It's really rewarding and fantastic. With, with arousal, if you're feeling awkward and uncomfortable, if you're worried that someone's going to overhear you and you would rather have privacy, if you um, think that you're taking too long, mm. um, if you're not confident that you look right, then all of those things, all that head stuff is totally going to interfere with your arousal and your being sense of being ready and prepared and totally in the moment and into it and enjoying it. Um, I talked about the clitoris and erectile tissue, but what, what happens, there's a whole heap of complex and anatomical things that go on. There's a, a cervix that sits at the, at the the muscle at the opening of the uterus that sits at the top of the vagina. And um, when a woman's, uh, I'll try not to use, I'm, I would prefer not to use binary terms like male and female, but it's, con, it's sort of shorthand in this place. When the person with the cervix is aroused, what happens, the, um, the, the cervix kind of is pulled sideways. So whatever's going in can actually, there's scope for it to go further rather than, uh, 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 which can be quite painful unless people have cervical orgasms, which is a different thing. So to take the time to be really safe and respected or just safe and aroused in a way that works for you is really important for, for pleasure and connectedness and well-being afterwards. In the resources, there's a TED talk from Peggy Orenstein, and she talks about research where women are asked about their sexual satisfaction. Mm -hmm. But she said it really defines how you, it really depends how you define satisfaction. If satisfaction means did you find it hot, did you have a good time, was it pleasurable, then, then that you might have got really different answers than if you were done. If often, if rather, if you don't define it, because somebody might be satisfied that they did what was expected of them, and the partner had an or the maybe the man, if it's a man, had an orgasm, and and it, and nobody nobody got found out or other bad things didn't happen around it. So so there's a really low bar for sexual satisfaction with women. I'd like to kind of segue into talking about why why women have sex it's it i've heard a few of my clients say um he liked me or he, he expressed an interest in me and so i connected up with him and we had sex which which was with the subtext for me is that they're saying look i didn't think i was attractive enough or interesting enough why would anybody want me here's someone who saw me seemed to like me so 
they weren't necessarily my type, but I grabbed at that because that was great to think that somebody actually liked me enough to express interest. Mm. And, that, and I think that, and again, that's where I go back to that sense of agency or self-identity or um, I'm pretty cool, you know, I, if, if I like you, I'll hook up with you. But if you, if I have to, but if, and if but if I think I'm maybe the, my body's not what it should be. Sure. There is no should, but, you know, or if I'm, because um, body image is, is massively interferes with, well-being i remember i had somebody one time say that when they were having sex with their partner they had to keep their arms in a certain position to keep their boobs together so they still had a cleavage so their boobs didn't drop into their armpits so she's focusing on how she looks Mm. probably the partner had his eyes shut wasn't looking anywhere i don't know i didn't actually get to talk to him but there's that sense of this is a performative thing that we do and I'm into how I'm looking and am I being good enough and what am I doing and not, hey, what's right for me? Where's my pleasure? Mm. Where's my autonomy? Where, where's the playfulness and the sense of adventure in this? And in that example you used where the young lady effectively agreed to have sex with someone because they felt validated in that moment, it makes it sound very yeah. transactional. It's it's like they were given the social validation and the personal validation for a moment. And so in exchange, she agreed to have sex. And so there's that image. And we talked about this in our, in our initial conversation about transaction and performance and sex. So I'm so glad you brought up the word again. Yes, that transaction. Because so much of sex is transactional. I'll have sex with you if you will then hang out with me and be, we'll, we can be seen as partners in public. I'll have sex with you because we're married and you earn the money and I, and pay the bills and I'm expected to do that to keep you happy. And then you don't stray. Um, I'm a sex worker and we have and, and I'll have sex with you and you exchange money for it. That's a really overt transaction. Mm -hmm. But so much there's so much subtlety around around the transactional nature of sex that people don't even think about. It's just what you do. And it's one of the oldest commodities. Oh yeah. Yeah, indeed. And a really important one. I've got lots of friends who are sex workers. I'm a huge, I think, I think we sex workers deserve a heap of respect and foot for the for the really important work they do. Can I play devil's advocate on this? Why should sure. sex not have an element of transaction in it? Is it a bad thing if it is transactional? Ah, good question. No, that's not a bad thing if it's transactional. So long as everybody engaged in the transaction is okay with the transaction. So again, it comes back to that consent. Right. Or not feeling coerced. So there's an element of transparency, is that what you're saying? Um, I don't think most people will even be aware that there's they won't be thinking about it on a transactional yeah. level. Um, so transparency probably is it's a high bar. It'd be great if maybe there was transparency. Like certainly in sex work, there's an overt transparency. But with um, with the young woman wanting social status through through sex, might not be and, and is totally agreeing to it, whether or not there's pleasure in it for them, um, might not really have thought about how transactional it is. Sure. So there's so many other places I want to go. Um, can I do a, a little segue back to initially you talked about what a sexologist or a sex therapist can or cannot do. If someone wants to yeah. go see a sex therapist, what can and cannot a sex therapist do? 
they what well, they can ask all kinds of questions all kinds of questions in fact that's part of the skill of being a good therapist is to come up with really is to ask the right question because the person then they go oh and they come up with all their own ideas um they can't insist on an answer to the question though they can um ask for information they can't insist that the person gives it to them they cannot breach confidentiality unless there's overt permission or unless they think the person is at risk mm -hmm. or they're required by law to breach, to disclose their notes that sort of stuff should be in the like i have a consent form that people sign before they see me that makes that really clear there's no there's not there's no physical contact there's certainly no sexual interaction with the therapist and the client uh, I referred extra, I said earlier that we were there were some things where we were, where Society of Australian Sexologists was still there were boundaries we were still in trying to, trying to work out where those boundaries are. Quite a few, some I've got colleagues who are both sex therapists, talk therapists, who've done training to be um, sexological body workers, where where it is about touch and about encourage it's they're not and encouraging the the client to learn how to pleasure themselves and they'll find their own pleasure so there's no touch from the from the client to the sexological body worker but there might be some not a lot but some touch and so we we were saying well if someone's a sex does the touch work some days and the talk only work other days can they be a member of our organization and currently the answer is no because they do touch work sometimes. Okay. Or if they're a sex worker and a therapist, no, they can't They can't be a member. I mean, they can still be a therapist, call themselves what they like, but they can't be a SAS member unless they're a retired sex worker. Like if they're not doing sex work anymore, you know, if they're not doing touch work of any kind. Sure. Oh, that's quite interesting. Do you have any sex workers drawn to becoming sex therapists? Oh, quite a few, yeah, yeah. Yeah, interesting. Well, because they know a lot. Boy, do they know a lot. And sex workers are, or the ones I know, really kind of um, have got amazing people skills, and they're very intuitive, and they and they've they've part of their the way they've learned to do their job and do it well is to really get into the connect with the person they they're working with, mm -hmm. so that to give a good service, but also it might be, um, and it again depends on the worker and what level of engagement they're interested in. But um, one person I'm thinking of who's recently retired has really worked very hard with, with men to, to see them for who they are and their vulnerability and, and is a safe space for this, all of that outer shell to crack and crumble mm. and, and, and just describes men weeping in her arms that someone has actually seen them, they've been able to be themselves for the first time. doesn't mean they kind of put the shell back on when they leave and they go out in the world and be whoever you know a big tough guy again but just to that space to be to allow vulnerability and to be seen is it can be a really important part of some people's sex worker work however i guess in a in a talk session you can do that as well but it's because it's a safe space and if, if there's if there's trust but um it's a it's a different it's obviously a different dynamic so in your clinical experience, what are some of the themes, some of the key issues that keep coming up for young people? Mismatched desire is a huge one. Okay. And I've kind of looked aside and sighed because I've had quite a few young people who come and say, look, we're together, we really love each other, 
you know, heterosexual couple. We really, but but I just can't have intercourse for whatever reason. Often because of that, maybe the trauma, or just maybe that overcoming the inhibition around the education mm-hmm. or the vaginismus, and working with them to kind of and acknowledging that love and connection is fantastic. It's really important because that's the thing that keeps them as a, together as a couple. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe, maybe the work is to go back to when, when did you first get together? What was your, what was the first time you were sexual together like? How would you like to? Let, let's let's just pretend that didn't happen. Let's start all over again. What are the conditions that you want? You would love to have. What what are the um, the breaks or accelerators for your desire? And and I get people they write that down and you go. Okay, and they go, I didn't know you didn't like that thing. Or is that important to you? I don't care. Of course, I'll keep my socks on, take my socks off, whatever it might be. Mm. So, and to, and to actually take the time to build up, to consider their shared sexuality as something really precious and I almost want to use the word sacred, not because it has to be like that every single time, but if they can have that experience and feel safe and feel like it's this really, have the really positive experience in a in a safe, special context, might just be let's clean the bedroom and put on clean sheets. Mm-hmm. Doesn't have to be going away somewhere fancy. Do you want candles? What kind of light or music? Set the scene. Be really intentional. Take the time. Make eye contact. Breathe, and and and, and to have that sense of safety, and and then rebuild up some of the the trigger reaction of the negative. You know, I don't want to do this anymore, or to to take to be in that space. And if one who is going, I'm not sure, that's fine, no pressure, we'll just wait. Hmm. Either take a break or maybe come back another day or might be take a break for a short period of time and just and sort of know that they can come, they, they can leave and that's okay, so they'll come back and work on it. And once you've taught the body, because it's about muscle memory and body learning and also in the brain, taught your body and your mind that, this person is safe and what we do is is special and we're both in it and we can communicate oh boy the language of communication is really important mm-hmm. then it might be that a casual fuck sometimes is going to be just as enjoyable but if it's just the casual fuck and none of the that sense of building that sense of safety and trust in the first place then the casual fuck's not going to work mm. less likely to work are you talking about in that context? And it's not going to work for a long-term relationship. It's not going to fulfill. I mean, I'm, I'm, I was thinking about like couples sure. who came, who come to see me, where the, where the, where there's the relationship that's great. And by casual fuck, I mean like a quickie yeah, late sure. at night or in, in the morning, rather. So because that because the scenario where you're really working hard on it is time-consuming, and most people don't have a lot of time. Yeah, sure. Although I do hear that there's a lot of the the birth rate is skyrocketing post. ISO. <laughs> I was wondering about that. Absolutely. What what yeah, what are yeah, you hearing? Yeah. Um, what are you hearing during ISO? What's the trends? What's changed? How's it influenced couples sexually or individuals sexually? I've just I've got input from a lot of different sources. Some of my input from that is with clients, and some of it's with Facebook groups I'm part of. There are certainly people who are can't get together, particularly queer communities, who might be used to getting together they can't get together in person but they're doing things that acknowledge their own identities as queer whatever that looks like for them 
and they're talking about what they would like to be doing and looking forward to it. Just that sense of connectedness. Mm -hmm. So there's that validation of who I am and I'm not alone. And I remember there was one time on a conversation about what are we missing in this time, somebody actually organized a Zoom party and one, one person who lives by themselves said, I'm so missing the release that I get from kink and kink play. Yeah. And couldn't have that. So that's one aspect. I imagine there's probably some inappropriate uh, coercive behaviour in ISO where people don't, they can't get away necessarily, so it's not necessarily all going to be positive. Mm. Other people might be, well, we've got time, let's just see what, let's have a play and explore some things mm. and choose what they watch as being maybe more arousing than what they would if they were at work and having a different kinds of lifestyle. Well, that's, that's a good... I'm not sure if that answered your question. That, that's a good segue um, when you talk about what we watch because I don't think any conversation on, on sex um, for young people can be complete without pornography or at least yep. at least talking about pornography. Um, yeah, acknowledge it as a factor. Yeah, sure. And I, I mean, the stats are overwhelmingly clear that uh, pornography does play a very, very significant role um, in the modern young adult. Um, how yep. does pornography affect sex for young people? Unfortunately, often pornography takes the place of comprehensive sexuality education. So what, so what, it's, so what people are, are seeing is, is staged play that will have a particular script. Um, what, and what young people can access for free is, not is rarely ethical porn, because ethical, and I believe there is, I'm not saying all porn is bad by any means, there is such a thing as ethical pornography and queer pornography. Um, and you have to pay for that, which is not within everybody's means. Mm. And by, by, so by ethical people are consenting, they're getting paid, their condition, their working conditions are good. It, influ it will influence what's expected of activities and behaviours. Um, for example, um, I heard a story about from someone, like young women expected their partner to ejaculate on their face or over their chest because that's what you see on porns because the money shot is the sure. thing. That, that it's, it's the visual, the money shot is the ejaculation shot, or that anal sex is really expected and, and, and common. Uh, however, the person receiving the anal sex might have spent four days or even weeks preparing for that scene with, with kind of relaxation and preparation and stretching and all of, of the anus and rectum. But you don't, see, you don't hear about that or see the negotiation. So you might get... So people expecting that anal sex will be part of the repertoire, but not having the skill to do it necessarily. And there's a heap of damage. People, people can get torn. Hmm. Um, so if, if you're just teaching comprehensive sexuality in school, part of it should be how to have anal sex safely. Take it really slowly. Plenty of lube. Take it really slowly. You know, <laughs> Introduce a tiny thing. Like make sure it's got a flared base so that it can't get lost inside the body. For example, those kind of things So important part. The other things that other actions that you might see that aren't, that I think people think of just, this is what you do when you have sex might involve um, slapping. Again, if it's, if that's, some people love getting slapped and if that's consensual, awesome. But if it just happens out of the blue without discussion, then that's a problem. Um, choking, really dangerous, rarely ever safe. Mm hard to do properly. Um, body, so that's actions. The bodies of people in porn tend to be 
apart from the really sort of more interesting queer porn, um, the bodies tend to be stereotypically beautiful bodies. So they might, the men might have muscles, there'll be a certain penis size that's expected, which is not average, it'll be bigger than average. Pubic hair will be removed. There'll be the expectation that women's vulvas will all look a certain type. And given that in Australia, it's illegal to show a normal vulva in porn or erotica, if it goes through the censors, it's all, um, I think the technical phrase is healed to a, a single crease. So um, I know Fiona Patton, who's the, the leader of the Reason Party, has been advocating really hard to try to change this censorship because what it, it doesn't, what it does is gives, is gives people a really unrealistic idea of what body should look like. And they go, well, I don't look like that. There's something wrong with me. Mm -hmm. um, because in a, damn, I wish I had my vulva puppet here. The labia minora usually dangle often, not always, but quite often will sometimes colloquially referred to as your flaps. Mm -hmm. um, we have some terrible terms in our Australian <laughs> slang. Um, and that's that, that's normal, but you, you won't see those in porn because they will be photoshopped away. Mm -hmm. So people will look at the, will see those bodies and particularly women and think I'm ugly. There's something gross about me. It's unnatural. Some women do have those really tight, closed-in vulvas, and that's also normal. But it's about the variation. One thing I didn't put on that resource list was the labia library. Women's Health Victoria has a fantastic resource of pictures of what vulvas look like. You can access and double check or people can look at so, so yeah what's missing in porn is that it's it's not a good substitute for sexuality education because you 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 won't see that connecting the eye gazing and the breathing and the just, just that sense of we're coming together and we're here for each other for something sensual and pleasurable um it's really performative like just like the same kind of performative as squeezing your boobs together so they look perky so it's about what you look like and not what, what, what you're feeling like, what you're doing. There's often the expectation of, of activities that might not be your thing. Yeah, so there's a few things there. Yeah, great. Um, I, I've got uh, a couple of questions as well. I, I went out and did a bit of a poll of some of my friends and said, I've got this conversation lined up. What should I be asking? So um, if it's all right, great. I want to move on to the next one. Um, what advice would you give to couples who've been in long-term relationships, uh, committed relationships, to spice things up, to make them a little bit more interesting? Ah, um, go to a workshop. There's some fantastic workshops out there. Around, it depends where they are. Although, given that it's all online these days, I... Full disclosure, I, have, I worked for a couple of years for a business called Curious Creatures and they had uh, and they, they run all kinds of workshops that might be about kink and BDSM or fun little sex games. And they also ran a, a, a play party, which is a different thing. But I know that these, work, these, um, these workshops are going online so that you can, and just as a, as a pre-record, so you can actually just buy them and look at them. And maybe, so spicing up by, by, thinking outside well this is what we normally do what might we do that's different um so that's basically disrupting that routine you referred to earlier disrupt the routine yeah um actually make an appointment to have a sexual encounter and maybe maybe oh, i'm just thinking on my feet here there's so many ideas that your house is full of pervertibles 
like um, what's in the third drawer? Did you just say pervertibles? I said pervertibles. Like the second drawer <laughs> down, well, I've just got a, my jar of pens here. You could, yeah. you could have a ruler. The second drawer down in the kitchen, how does the pastry wheel with the little prickles feel on it when you roll it over your skin? So all sorts of, or feathers or, or fabrics, things for sensation play, to try to think about what are we going to do that's actually, that's, that's so totally different, what does it feel? I would suggest body mapping where you take it in turns with pick a body part, doesn't have to be genitals, and just practice touching it in different ways and get the person to give feedback. Oh, that's really good or no, too tickly or firmer or harder or less scratchy or more scratchy. So you get an idea of like, oh, I didn't know the my, my inner elbow was such a sensitive zone that felt so good when you touched it. So actually discover each other's bodies sure. in a way that you haven't before. Um, it might be fun to write a whole list of things on scraps of paper or like it might be sex but no genitals or a body part or an activity and just draw, put them all the bits in together, mix them up and take it in turns to pull out things or to pull out three things and line them up and, well, how can we combine these three ideas and do something fun? So Great idea. But, but before, bef before you do any of that with the spicing up, it's definitely to take the time to make eye contact and sit and be together and be seen and just really check in. How are you doing? And, and be comfortable because that's just that how you're doing. Yeah, I'm okay. Now you're worried. What are you worried about? And just and let just actively physically letting go of some of the baggage, which is hard in pandemic times because everybody's anxiety levels have risen mm. a lot. Someone once gave me a really but, good quote. They said, um, sex is both a meeting of the minds and a meeting of the bodies. And unless you get both those yeah. connections right, it, it, it's not complete. The, yeah. the experience isn't as full as it could have been. Yes. And, and, I, and I'm, it doesn't have to be a peak experience every single time. It might just be today I just want a snuggle and I'm done or today or it might be, it might be some kind of genital-based interaction that's just quick and then off you go, or it might be, let's let's book an appointment for three hours with each other and just take it really slowly and take our time. Mm. So there's yeah. and and it doesn't have to. And you're talking about people who are already in committed relationships, and I, I'm certainly not judging people who choose to have casual relationships or one night stands, or but you can still have. I think it's in the, on the show notes. Georgie Wolf with the Art of the Hookup. Um, writes about just how you can make a single encounter really enjoyable by the way that you connect and get to know, negotiate your feedback, like to be able to give feedback, uh, to say that would be even better if you did it, if you just shifted that, like let's say you, I've got my clip, you're going, ah, 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 and you think you're doing the right thing, to say, oh, that was not just, ow, oh, that's hurting, which can make the person feel the other person feel rejected, but to go, oh, it'd be even better if you gave a break there. That was great, thank you, but can you stroke my inner thigh instead? And then the person says, thank you, because the fact that you're giving feedback means you value what you're doing enough to want to make it good, so that way they can feel confident that whatever's happening together is going to be the best it can be for each of you. Mm. That's great. Um Linda, can you tell us what is BDSM? How does it work? And when would a couple or an individual consider exploring it? What could it offer them? 
Great question. BDSM stands for bondage, sadomasochism, dominance and submission. Usually the dominance and submission is a power dynamic. It may involve a level of impact play. Impact play might be spanking or caning, and that can be really gentle, or it could be quite vigorous, depending on what you've negotiated. That's, that's the bondage, what it says, being tied up. Um, or it, might, it, do, it doesn't actually have to involve ties. You might just say to somebody, hold on to the bedhead and imagine you're tied up and don't let go till I tell you. So the bondage can be virtual as much as, as um, actual with, with ropes or ties. And the power, the power dynamic play is, is part of that too. Uh, so that's, that's what it is. Why do people like it and how might you, when might you do it or why might you find it? Um, for some people, it's, it's a total transformation of their world. I, went, I love going to ConFest. I was so sad ConFest got cancelled this last year, which is an alternative festival. Uh, in Australia, and, and I, one time I went to Confest and I saw a, a, a shibari session, so a bondage, people getting tied with ropes. And the person who introduced it said, one of the things about shibari is that when you're untied, it's like you're tied up, it's almost like your mind is, your whole, all of you is tied up. And, um, and you, it's that letting go of what's in your head and, and part of the untying is also releasing the stuff that's in your head. I thought, God, as somebody like me who, who is just wants to be in control and tuned in the whole time, that thought of actually being in a place where I had no choice but to let go sounded really, sounded really good. Hmm. So, it's, um, so it doesn't have to be necessarily kinky, kinky sexual stuff. It might just be the sense of, out of having control taken away from you so that you can relax because you're normally you're normally in control and likewise with the domination submission that can be just a role play it might just be a really short scene that someone's doing and a scene what's a scene a scene is a, a planned activity that will just be a short thing where you where you do a thing like you tie someone up and untie them or you spank someone or you um uh, it might even just relate to uh, it can be sexual, but it might just relate to playing a game in a particular way or, or a scenario. And by the role, if you're normally in your life, you're submissive and you just do as you're told and you're the dog's body at work. And when you play, you can be the one telling you, do this thing because I say so. And it kind of, or, or vice versa, it allows people to express parts of themselves they don't express otherwise. There's some interesting research that shows that people who are BDSM practitioners actually have better mental health, less likely to be reporting mental health problems than people who don't because they've learned about the control and the knowing the boundaries and being able to call boundaries. And that's part of the, that's part of the trick for it. That's part of the, what's really important. Like you know who you are, you've thought about what you want, you know you can ask for what you want, you can consent and say no, you can give feedback, and you can call or stop. Yeah, right. Um, why would someone explore this? What sorts of? Oh, because it's well, just like you said, how do people? How how can long term couples spice up their relationship? Well, maybe they actually experiment. <laughs> sure. with power, maybe they experiment with power play. 
Yeah. Maybe they go to a workshop at a festival and go, oh, God, I'd love to have that happen to me. Or maybe they go, sensation play. Why would, it, why would you want? I, I remember the first time I went to a, a, a King and BDSM workshop, I said, I'm not into sensation. I'm not into impact play. And I was like, no, speaking terrible thing. And then, and, but in fact, there's a whole lot of, um, oh, gee, what am I doing on a podcast? There's a whole lot of, um, like the, the pain receptors and the pleasure receptors in the brain are the same thing. It's just the perception. So yeah. it's, about, it's about just trying stuff that what feels, what feels good, what feels different. Yeah, that intersection of your mind and your body is, is sort of it's yeah. the meaning of the two. So the, now the important thing here, too, by the way, if you're talking about any of this stuff, is that it really has to be done ethically and well, safe, sane, and consensual. So there's got to be, cons- it's got to be safe. So, like, if, if anybody, this is really people listen to this, if anybody talks about using, actually tying up and using rope, where are the scissors? You need to make sure that the, how you're going to get out in a hurry, that there's, that there's, that, that they know what they're doing how, and, and not they're just, oh, let's just experiment with this and they tie something too tightly and your circulation's cut off and you've got permanent nerve damage. Like you've got to be, there's, there's a, it's a real skill. So it's important with any of this stuff that you use this. So it's got to be safe. It's got to be or sane. So part of, the, part of the sane is that you're in a good space, like sober for a start, um, and, um, and, and, and in a, a sensible circumstance and the consent, consensual. Mm-hmm. And with the consent, the person, particularly in a, with the um, domination submission, let's say somebody is topping, which is like, like there's, let's say there's impact play and someone's getting spanked. The person who is the submissive one receiving the spanking is the one with all the control because they are the one who can say, call red, it's all over. So when they say stop, it stops. So in fact, you'd think the person doing the giving is the one with the power, but in fact, it's the person doing the receiving who has the power. And that's part of what makes it safe and sane. Yeah, interesting. Can you talk a little bit about sex addictions? Do you see sex addictions come in? How often do you see them? Um, And at what point would someone start thinking that there might be an issue? The evidence does not support that sex addiction is a thing at all. So if someone comes to me and says, I think I've got sex addiction, I will say, I don't, I don't use that term. I don't think it's actually technically addiction. However, some people have problematic behaviours and I'm really happy to work with those behaviours. By labelling something as addiction, there's a whole heap of um, shame and stigma that goes with the thought of I'm addicted to this thing, I don't have control over it. I said to a client recently who was talking about a, a really urgent compulsion whenever he saw his girlfriend, he just one of the first things they had to do was they had to have sex. And it was like, oh, I've got to do this thing. I said, if sex is the answer, what is the question? And to think about actually, is, is it that you want to be validated and you, what are you asking for? And are there, maybe are there other ways to have that question answered? Perhaps it's not that he just he was just busting to get his rocks off. It might have been... He just wanted to have a few moments being, wanted to be seen and have some of that shared energy and then they can settle into hanging out. And, and what, what happened in this particular experience? Did he find out what the question was? I haven't spoken to him since. I think we've got, 
Which was, I mean, I can't give you an answer to that one. But, but when I said that, when I asked him the question, he went, oh, oh. And it's really, then we had a whole heap of strategies about making sure that leading up to when he turned up at her house, that his frame of mind was in, he was in a really good frame of mind and not just, oh, I've got to have sex. So thinking about other things. But a problematic behaviour, like sorts of things that people might be, um, let's, say, let's say someone's compulsively masturbating or hooking up all the time. What is it that they're looking for? Is it, is it and, and I, maybe you map out, when is it happening? What's going on in your world when you're doing these things? And it might be, oh, it only happens when I see this person or I go and visit my, I go and visit my in-laws. I've got to come home and sit in front of the porn and, and fat and maybe it's actually it's it's a it's a stress release and it's a self-soothing behavior and if it's if it works and it's not bothering anybody then you know use it but maybe there are some times where it's not appropriate to use that self-soothing behavior how, how else can you soothe yourself how else can you manage whatever it is that's the stress or so that you don't need to soothe so at so intensively and, and that's and that's often where quite longer therapy, longer duration of therapy might be needed to get to kind of dig in what's going on for you. Like people who might have issues with abandonment might need to work on that sense of self self um, acceptance. And I'm using this gesture of bringing in I might do something like inner child work and getting them to find all that, that the little kid who was left lonely and and talk as it come back go to, go to them as an adult and go it's okay i've got this you know we're successful and just that sense of becoming whole again mm. yeah interesting to be to feel psychologically and emotionally safe we really need five people we could go to if we need to go to somebody and they might not look like all of who we are and all the bits of who we are but we still need to feel accepted mm -hmm. by those five people and safe and trusted so that we can talk to those reach out and talk to those people if necessary. So whether you're experimenting with the fishnets and the corsets and the, and the really sexy dancing, or whether you're experimenting with a goth or experimenting with um, whole heap of one night stands to want to commit to a relationship or committing to a relationship and thinking, oh, is, is, am I actually doing this for the long term? That's a bit, that's a big deal. Let's make a decision or Am I, am I non-monogamous and how's that going to work out and how do we talk about that? Or am I, am I uh, bisexual or asexual? And just to feel, to, to, to know where you can go, to, just to, under, to learn about those things and then to feel safe just acknowledging who you are is a really big deal, really important for your mental health. Okay, we're going to wrap it up there for today. We'd like to send a big thank you to Little Finch, Bird and Bazza 1991 for the reviews on the Apple Podcast app. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review and a comment. We read every single one and it gives us a huge boost to keep going. Thanks so much and see you again soon.